I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Join me on a quest to find awe and wonder in all nature, human or wild, vast or small, encounters that move us beyond words. And I hit this ribbon of scent. It's this narrow little ribbon from some flower just coming down like it had texture. It literally stopped me in my tracks, this incredible smell. To descend into the depths of the Grand Canyon is to go back 1.7 billion years. It's a visit to the geologic childhood of Earth. 18 miles across at its widest, 277 miles long, and more than a mile deep, it's dauntingly vast, with its signature layers of rusty red, sage, cream, and ochre, the walls of its inner gorge echoing day and night with the roar of rapids. Any single visual feature of this place might overwhelm, but there's always more than meets the eye. If you stop up your ears and close your eyes, other senses may well discover what the eyes and ears overlook. felt like I knew what it was like to be maybe like a, a bumblebee whose world is textured by the smell of the flowers around them. That's Melissa Sivany describing a sensory summit she reached while deep within the Grand Canyon. Melissa is a science journalist at Arizona Public Radio. She's author of Brave the Wild River, the untold story of two women who mapped the botany of the Grand Canyon. In order to map botany, you need to be a botanist. And the first botanist you need to know for Melissa Sivany's story is Dr. Elzada Clover, who in 1937 was hatching a plan. That plan would result in her becoming one of the first two women of record ever to run the rapids of the Colorado. I'm talking about the most treacherous stretches of this river flowing through Utah and Arizona canyons. In the early 20th century, very few women held academic posts such as hers. Elzada Clover was a scientist at the University of Michigan, but even fewer people, male or female, had ever entered this rocky trough of western whitewater, churning between towering escarpments in a region with a deserved reputation for being especially unpredictable and deadly. But Dr. Elzada Clover wasn't just out for thrills. Her passion was plants. Through her adventures and misadventures of the coming year, working with an assistant, Elzada Clover would survey plants, press plants, discover new species of plants, and performed the only such scientific survey ever done of Glen Canyon before it became Lake Powell behind a massive dam. Deep in this remote desert country, she and fellow scientist Lois Jodder, a University of Michigan graduate student, found themselves ideally situated to experience the classic kind of awe we would expect of any visitor to this epic place if that had been what they wanted. But no matter how amazing the grit and the gumption of these two women in pulling off an epic journey as explorers in these incredible surroundings, don't jump to any conclusions here. Yes, they were adventurous and daring, but they weren't your stock image adventurers. 
This grand, vast landscape was never their primary focus. If they had been scaling Everest, it wouldn't have been for conquest and it wouldn't have been for the view from the top. I love in Lois Jodder's journal, just after they leave Lee's Ferry, like a moment after they've left and they've started to move into the canyon and the layers are rising up, she writes, nice clouds and red cliffs. And that's all she says about this incredible <laughs> geology because she's not really looking at it. She's looking at the plants. There's something unavoidably amusing about a botanist named Clover. She surely must have tired of the joke. This particular clover had a theme for cactus. The whole reason she went into botany was because she was obsessed with cactus. And she had this idea that she wanted to make a complete cactus collection of all the cacti in the Southwest, which is pretty ambitious. She struggled to find any support or funding for the project. And so she, she did it on her own time in the summers, kind of between her teaching responsibilities. She would take her car and drive out as far west as she could get and pick up cactus on her own dime. Let's put this in clear perspective. In 1937, there was no interstate highway system. Roads were often rocky and rutted. Most any remote destination meant rough going with vast distances. Elzada Clover was living and working in Michigan. And with this cactus obsession of hers, she headed out solo, southward and westward, driving and driving and driving. She was doing this in the summer of 1937. She was out in Utah collecting cactus and staying at a place called the Mexican Hat Lodge. Mexican Hat, Utah is a tiny desert town on the edge of the silty San Juan River, not far from the Arizona border. The settlement takes its name from a large natural rock formation that looks like a sombrero. Today, in 2023, Mexican Hat has a meager population of a couple dozen people. And back in 1937, it was a fraction of that size. And one evening at the lodge, she sits down and talks with the person who owns it, whose name is Norm Nevels. And she discovers that he also has a, a deeply held dream, which is to start a commercial river running business down the Grand Canyon. And at this time in his life, he had been taking tourists down the San Juan River, which is a tributary of the Colorado, and it's a nice, calm, quiet river. But he had never done the Grand Canyon. He had never done any kind of, like, whitewater river rafting before. So he was pretty inexperienced, and they get to talking, and they realize that this would be the perfect way for Clover to get her cactus collection. I mean, there's really no way to make a complete plant collection in the Grand Canyon hiking it. You have to go by river. And so the way Elzada Clover described it later is that they cook up this crazy plan in just a couple of minutes. They're going to recruit some more people. They're going to build some boats. You can't just go out and buy boats for whitewater river rafting at this time. And they're going to go down the Colorado River. When Elzada Clover came back from Mexican Hat and started looking around for a couple of scientists to recruit, she knew that she had to recruit a woman because it was the 1930s and it would be inappropriate for her to go off into the wilderness with just a group of men. Elzada Clover's concern for social propriety wasn't without reason. After the trip, our grad student in this story, the aforementioned Lois Jodder, whom the older botanist ultimately selected to go along with her, gave talks about the adventure to community groups. 
Here's what happened at one of her presentations. A woman came up afterwards and leaned over close to me and she said, tell me, did anyone try to take advantage of you on that trip? And <laughs> my mouth, I know, dropped open and I said, oh, oh you know, oh no. Uh, everybody was very, very pleasant and very friendly. And she said, well, they're men, aren't they? That's Lois Jodder herself, sitting in a boat along the San Juan River in Mexican Hat, Utah, reminiscing for writer and river historian Lou Steiger. Now, Elzada Clover didn't want to be responsible for someone else's fate and kind of hesitated. Lois Jodder was 24 years old at the time of this trip. She was a student at the University of Michigan. She was well on her way to getting her Ph.D., and she had formerly been a student of Elzada Clover's. Elzada Clover's a bit of a daredevil. She loves taking risks. She loves the idea that there's going to be danger. But she's nervous about inviting Lois because she's, she's frankly worried about what could happen. The 40-year-old professor does, however, see her way clear to inviting the younger botanist to join the venture. Lois just jumps on it. She's thrilled to be invited on this trip. And she spends a lot of time over the next few months writing letters to her family, particularly her parents, to basically convince them to let her go. They are not (laughs) excited about this. They're excited about the opportunity for their daughter, but they're quite nervous about the dangers she's going to face. No sooner does word begin to circulate about Clover's ambitions than the naysaying begins. No woman has challenged the Colorado and survived. That phrase echoed everywhere, from the mouths of skeptical university colleagues and whitewater boating experts and, of course, fearful family members. Ultimately, the newspapers chimed in, too. It was true. No woman had survived the Colorado. None that we know of, but it was also a deceptively silly thing to say, because only one woman had ever tried. December 29th, 1928, the Associated Press. Hopes for canyon venturers dying. Veteran Riverman thinks Hyde and wife perished in swirling waters. Conviction that Glenn R. Hyde and his wife perished on the swirling waters of the Colorado River, which they attempted to navigate on a honeymoon trip, was expressed here today by Emery Kolb, veteran Riverman. The Riverman reported that examination of the scow used by the couple to shoot the river rapids indicates that disaster had overtaken them near where the craft was found, lodged in the rocks which clog the tortuous canyon riverbed. The disappearance of Bessie Hyde with her husband had left a lot of people thinking of the river as no place for a woman. One man loudly voicing the sexism so typical of that era was a certain Buzz Holmstrom. Holmstrom was an Oregon gas station attendant in his 20s, and just the year before, he had made quite a splash nationally with his own hand-built version of a Mackenzie River drift boat. So he was quite famous at this time. He had gone down the Grand Canyon solo in 1937, the first solo trip on record, and he had become kind of a media darling. And there were all of these stories about Buzz, who was, they described him as a he-man's hero, right? This incredibly manly person, and it was his manliness that (laughs) enabled him to survive on this dangerous trip. And he was quoted in the Saturday Evening Post. At Green River, Utah... 
I heard about the last expedition before me. A daring young river runner named Hyde had started there with his bride to honeymoon through the canyon. You know, women have their place in the world, but they do not belong in the canyon of the Colorado. That article came out in February of 1938, just a week after Lois Jodder tells her entire family that she's going to go run the Colorado River. And it's terrible timing, and everybody she knows reads the story. And there's this flurry of sudden concern, like, wait a minute, only these, like, burly, manly men can do these kinds of things. So... Buzz starts off in the story as almost the villain, like he overshadows their trip. It's very frustrating. Clover worries that she's not going to get grant funding after that article comes out. You know, it has real consequences for their planning. Because the danger of what they were about to do, along with the fact that they were female, quickly overshadowed their scientific focus. Here's Lois Jodder again, decades later, speaking with Lou Steiger. The first publicity that came out about the trip came because I told a friend of mine what my summer plans were. And her mother looked at me and she said, have you seen that river? Do you know what you're doing? And I lied and said, yeah, I've seen the river. Um, Knowing that I had seen pictures of it and read all of the accounts of it, and I didn't feel that I was unaware of the fact that it was a dangerous trip. So the headline came out in the student newspaper, which was widely read in Ann Arbor, that said, women botanists to collect on the Colorado River. And the news services picked that up. And that was really more publicity than certainly than than I wanted. So the story, Melissa, gets a little bit out of control? Oh gosh, it does. It, it really it really does mushroom. And by the time they actually drive out to Green River, Utah, it's national press. And the focus again is really on the fact that there's two women attempting to do this trip. And Clover and Jada really had to push back against this press, and it was frustrating for them. They were constantly telling journalists, like, we know what we're doing, which they maybe didn't entirely, but they were telling them, we know what we're doing, and we're going to make this plant collection, and we're doing this because we're botanists. We don't care about this idea of women conquering the Colorado River. That doesn't matter to us. What matters to us is making this plant collection. Now, to be fair, not all of the critics' pushback hinged on gender stereotypes. The Salt Lake City Telegram simply wondered about the venture's timing with the water at flood stage. Salt Lake City Telegram, June 22, 1938. Taking needless chances. Experienced boatmen shook their heads as voyagers launched their craft at Green River. The water was high and angry. The party has 666 miles of tough going ahead. For fame, for glory, for thrill, or for swell obituaries, they are going down the river. If there is special providence that watches over the blind and the drunken, let all hope that it will extend its protective care over the foolish, reckless, and heedless. A wait of a few days would have spared the expedition from many hazards. But they're on their way, and we all will wish them luck. They will need it. 
Here's Elzada Clover's description of the moment of departure. The citizens of Green River gathered to see us off, and a funeral service could not have been less cheerful. They had seen so many others start with this same optimism, never to return. And here again, Lois Jodder, several decades later, recalling how they were sent off by the various gawkers. On that section of the trip is where usually older men would come up to us and say, you really know what you're getting into. That's a bad place. X many people have been lost in X many places. And there was even one gentleman who had had too much beer who came over and kissed us both goodbye to our great surprise. And we were probably flippant about the whole thing because it seemed like the easiest way to, to handle being warned that you were going to, probably not going to come back was what they were saying. And I think it was probably Elsie who said first, well, if we don't come back, just toss a rose over into the canyon for us. And this really, this really bothered people, you know, I guess again, because it sounded too flippant. Lois Jodder concedes that, in spite of her resolve to go along, she did actually harbor some misgivings about the boats. I wasn't even sure that they were going to float, because uh, I don't I don't think either Elzada or I expressed this opinion, but we didn't know. They'd never been in the water, and it was a comparatively new design. So I was really quite relieved when thought all we'd need would be to have one, one boat sink before we ever really took off. But the boats floated, and as the party disappeared down the river swollen with heavy rains, newspapers offered an unrelenting drumbeat of doom. June 26th, 1938, Associated Press. Three fragile craft carrying two women and four men were somewhere in the Grand Canyon today, drifting down the roaring Colorado River. The party braved the churning rapids of the mighty gorge in the interest of science, following a course where tragedy has taken a heavy toll of explorers and prospectors. If their kith and kin were following the papers, and you can bet they were, what they saw in print was a picture of almost certain disaster downriver. The botanical purpose of the expedition received only scant mention. One journalist in Salt Lake City did manage a botanical reference, a disparaging remark about the pursuit of a few botanical freaks. Not, by the way, referring to the scientists themselves. Plants were the freaks. Yet the innuendo seems unmistakable. We have some white water ahead of us yet in this episode of Constant Wonder. It's about the first two known women to shoot the Colorado River Rapids of southern Utah and Arizona's Grand Canyon. Melissa Sivany presents all the compelling details in her book, Brave the Wild River, the untold story of two women who mapped the botany of the Grand Canyon. I'm Marcus Smith. Pausing here now for just a few seconds to let you know, dear listener, how thrilled we are that Constant Wonder has been named a finalist in the Religion and Spirituality category of the second annual Signal Awards. It's a distinct honor to be recognized among the best in the podcast industry. We're also in the running for a Listener's Choice Award, 
selected by people like you. You can help us out. Just visit our website, byuradio.org slash constantwonder, and there you'll find a link to vote for our podcast in the Signal Awards. Voting is open through October 5th at 11.59 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. The expedition's first few days were actually peacefully picturesque. Even today, the run from the town of Green River, Utah, down to the confluence with the Colorado River is generally placid. The boats worked well, the team got their river legs, and the overarching botanical purpose of the two women scientists could be pursued fairly easily, with Elzada Clover focusing on her coveted cacti, Lois Jodder keeping a sharp eye out for evening primrose, her specialty. But formidable rapids would soon grow audible in a section of what is now Canyonlands National Park. June 27th, United Press. Voyagers drifting into Cataract Canyon, scene of tragic end for many adventurers. The two women and four men who are daring the turbulent Colorado River rapids were believed today to be drifting toward Cataract Canyon, beyond which there is no escape until they reach Lee's Ferry. There is no complete record of those who have lost their lives in similar ventures. Our two botanists with their support crew received a very rude welcome from this infamously difficult stretch of water, very nearly confirming the worst fears of all the doubters who had been prophesying mayhem, bedlam, death, destruction. They're about four days into the trip. They've been going down the Green River, a tributary of the Colorado, which is a nice, quiet river. And they they reach the confluence, and they see the Colorado River for the first time. The whole crew, there's six of them all together. None of them have any experience with this trip. And they're all kind of astonished. They're all looking at this river like, (laughs) what have we got ourselves into? And so they're standing on the riverbank, staring at their very first rapid, trying to decide how to navigate going through it. And one of the three boats, which is tied up on the shore, pulls away, and it heads off downriver all by itself. Norm Nevels had named his boats the Wen, the Botany, and the Mexican Hat. The last one named, of course, after his hometown. It's the Mexican Hat that breaks loose from its rope and decides to brave the rapids all on its own, nearly leading to the ruination of this whole venture just as it's getting underway. This is really bad because you have to keep in mind that their food supplies are split between these boats and they've just started the trip and there's no place to stop or resupply. With the Mexican hat bobbing somewhere downriver, laden with vital provisions, nobody on board, well, to call that a bad omen is a bit of an understatement. The crew hadn't even yet hit the very first rapid of Cataract Canyon, but it was time for that now and a fearful sequence would ensue. Six of them were split between two boats. Everything unfolded with dizzying speed. Remember, they were novices, essentially, careening through whitewater with scarcely an ounce of control. People fell out of the boats. At one point, Norm Nevels would look up and see Lois Jodder rushing by solo, unable to stop. In all of the commotion, Lois Jodder and one of the crew members named Don Harris eventually came together, swept along far ahead of the rest of the team, And once they got through the worst of it, to their great relief, they spied the lost Mexican hat. And then they did what probably any of us would try to do in those circumstances. They tied it in tow and pulled it over to safety up onto the riverbank. And by now they're several miles downriver, 
And so Don Harris decides he's going to walk back and he's going to tell everybody that it's all okay. And he leaves Lois Jodder there and he tells her, I'll come back for you. But he doesn't show up. And she doesn't have any idea what happened to him. He just never returns. Norm Nevels records in his journal what happened that night. June 24th. Elzada, Bill, and I went to sleep side by side, trying to make up for inadequate covering. We slept feet towards the river and some four feet back from the edge. 1 a.m., I awoke yelling with the sensation of the river taking me. The river had risen and cut the bank out from under us until our legs were actually dangling out over the water. The day dawns coolish, the river is in full flood and is a dreadful sight, with the enormous big trees rushing past. The upstream group worried about Lois alone on the river. No need, she actually made out better than they did. I loved this scene. Early in the project, I ran across a letter that she wrote a few weeks later to her mother describing what happened to her that night. She's all alone, all night, on the banks of this incredibly wild river. Everything that could go wrong went wrong that day. And she builds a fire, and she eats some toast, and she has two of the boats, so she has almost all of the bedding and almost all of the food. Everyone else is quite miserable that night and freezing cold. She's quite comfortable. And she just describes the experience of listening to the river and the sounds of the night around her. And she says later to her mother, I had a lovely time. Separated until the morning, the crew then caught up with Lois. Everyone was safe, though battered and exhausted and feeling ill from drinking silty river water. Here's Lois Jodder again. We just drank whenever we felt thirsty. And sometimes we even drank out of our sun helmets when we were on the river. Usually we tried to let the water settle overnight, but that was all that happened to the water. From Elzada Clover's description of their condition just five days into this journey, well, one would easily conclude that folks just weren't in the best of shape. Jean was quite ill from drinking the river water, which left a sort of clay lining in the, in the mouth and throat. And most of us were nursing infections and bruises and blisters as we worked with wet, sand-filled shoes and usually drenched clothing. On June 29th, disaster was again narrowly averted, this time at Gypsum Canyon Rapids at the lower end of Cataract Canyon. Norm Nevels paints the scene. It was just 1.20 p.m. Just then, I noticed I couldn't see the river below. Standing on the deck didn't help. Decided to run to the right, where the current dashed against a low cliff. Yelled at Elzada as we went for the drop, this is the biggest drop of the trip. I scooted just to one side of the big mushroom and got into a mess of other big fellas, but we took them beautifully. We being Norm Nevels and Elzada Clover, not such a great go of it for the others. The swift current pulled the pilot boat into the boiling mass before we could stop and study the water. Unable to signal the others, Norm and I had to watch helplessly as a big explosion wave threw the botany into the air, overturning. Bill popped up some distance from the point of upsets. Jean appeared clinging to the overturned boat, which was swept towards us. I immediately pulled towards an eddy on the left, then looked to see the botany bottom side up, with one man clinging close to the prow rope and the other man drifting close to the right-hand shore. 
I finally got to an eddy so as to hold up to catch the botany as it went by. In the meantime, the Mexican hat came through all right and made for the drifting man. Lois Jotter and one of the boatmen, Don Harris, jump into one of the other boats and they chase it, bailing out the boat with an empty coffee can as they go through six or seven rapids downstream. While Lois was bailing, Elzeda had leapt audaciously into the water to swim and pull lines alongside the men. Here's her blow-by-blow. We were swept over seven big rapids and innumerable smaller ones before a dull boom came to our ears. Dark Canyon Rapid was ahead, and it would be deadly to run. Jean put every ounce of strength behind the oars and succeeded in getting within ten feet of the shore. As the current started to pull us out, I turned the towboat over to him and and jumped with the Wen's prow rope. I hoped the water would not be too deep. But it was, and I went under clutching the rope. As I came up, Jean jumped in to help me, and the tow rope was jerked from his hand. Jean groped around in the muddy water and found the rope. I swam to the shore, struggled frantically to snub the rope around a rock as the current tugged at the wen. I barely succeeded. One of the staple foods on this trip was a breakfast cereal known as grape nuts. Nothing new to my generation or yours. But what I really like is the way grape nuts feels in my mouth. Good and crunchy. That's because it's oven-baked then toasted for crunchiness. It's the only cereal I know that is. But when the botany overturned, soaking everything in it, these grape nuts became a sodden mess. Here's Lois. Anything that was in there was pretty well soaked. And, and this was how my dislike of grape nuts originated, because we, we spread them out on a rock to dry, but they dried in, in aggregates like great big marbles. And even when we tried to pound these apart, they still didn't dry out in the center. Of course, they molded. And I don't like grape nuts <laughs> to this day. Newspapers, of course, knew nothing of the grape nuts fiasco because there was no contact with the outside world until the team reached Lee's Ferry several days later. In the interim, reporters could only wait and watch the clouds. Here's the ominous United Press wire service report from July 2nd. River conceals scientists' fate. The Colorado River was reported at flood stage today, arousing fear for the safety of two flora-minded women and four adventurous men who are attempting to shoot the river's rapids. In spite of the fact that the expedition is not scheduled to arrive at Lee's Ferry until Monday, rivermen here watched the waters flow for bits of wreckage or evidence of the party's fate. Ironically, the media had started to get worried just as the expeditioners reached Glen Canyon, which back then happened to be a calm, lovely stretch of the Colorado. This was, of course, before the building of a dam to form Lake Powell. They spent several days drifting along peacefully in a picturesque place, Specimens successfully collected by this juncture were remarkable in variety. Netleaf hackberry, prince's plume, sand verbena, woolly loco weed, alkali bulrush. You were right with me up to grape nuts. Uh, Not to say that these days of floating and collecting were without tension in the party. Maybe it was Norm Neville's leadership style, but all we really know is that he and Elzada Clover, the authority figures on these boats, 
somehow became the target of backbiting. No more rapids to run. A beautiful place, Glen Canyon, but you just drift along. And I think the relief of the pressure makes you do things that you might not otherwise have done because the four of us sort of made a tight community and excluded Norm and Elzada. And I don't feel particularly guilty about that, but it was unfortunate. And so we tied up together the two boats and drifted down and ignored the others. And this was the genesis of Norm calling me a troublemaker. I was not any more so than any of the other three. We were equally culpable, I believe, and equally impatient with Norm. Except for Elzada, the rest act like a bunch of kids, whispering amongst themselves and trying to work up a good excuse to quit at Lee's Ferry. Lois says she's going on. Gene isn't enthused, but says he's going on. I don't know as I will let him. He's a poor sport and shirks his work. I don't trust Don, but he says he'll go on as far as Grand Canyon. Bill says he'll go on, though any excuse at all to save his face, and he'll quit. They hate to admit that the water is too much for them. Lee's Ferry would be the expedition's first contact with the outside world since launch, and it was the logical point of intermission. Norm Nevels was fed up with the festering and the chafing and the grumbling. He had begun to weigh the wisdom of ejecting one of the team members. Amid all this divisiveness, the group continued drifting lazily downriver, unaware that the public following them in the media was beginning to panic. They're about a week behind schedule. Of course, there's no way to communicate this to the outside world. And the newspapers start publishing these front-page stories about this lost expedition. July 5th, United Press. Colorado Voyagers over limit set by scanty food supply. Anxiety grows with failure to appear. The two women and four men who started a scientific expedition down the swollen Colorado River two weeks ago carried only enough provisions, it was disclosed today, to last until July 4th. Campfires burned along the banks of the river last night. Watchers hoped that members of the party, riding in three small boats, might see the fires and know that help was near. July 5th. Associated Press. Heaving waters of the ominous flood-tide Colorado River were watched today with apprehension by two government employees awaiting arrival of a six-member scientific expedition from Green River, Utah, 300 miles upstream. Only the belief that the party, scheduled to arrive here yesterday, was delayed by long portages around particularly dangerous rapids, kept the spirits of the two lone residents of this northern Arizona outpost buoyed. Airplanes start diverting their routes so the passengers can look out the windows and try to find wreckage on the river below them. And this is what everyday stories in the national press are saying. And so Lois Jodder's family is terrified, and they're writing letters to each other like, maybe we shouldn't have let her go. They're so very frightened. And Jodder's oblivious to all of this, and she writes some very cheerful letters when they finally arrive at Lee's Ferry and can get some mail out where she's like, I'm having a great time, and I'm really looking forward to going further. And meantime, her family is just in a state of panic. 
they're camped on a sandbar one evening when a plane swoops overhead and all of these little bits of paper start falling on them from above. And so they all scatter trying to catch one of these bits of paper. I found one in one of the archives. I looked at the actual piece of paper that was dropped, and it's on this very thin typewriter paper, typed out with all of these little crossed-out moments where they made mistakes. We are a U.S. Coast Guard airplane looking for a party of geologists from the University of Michigan who are overdue at Lee's Ferry. If you are that party, will you please give the following signal? Everybody lie down, then stand up again. If you are in need of food, everybody sit down. If you are entirely all right, everybody hold his arms horizontally out from his side. It is most important that we determine who you are, so please identify yourselves by giving the first mentioned signal first. And so they had great fun doing this. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's how, that's how intense it got for a while. Colorado River scientists get through rapids safely. Fears for expedition allayed as flyers observe replies to notes about conditions and food supply. The overdue Neville's expedition was reported 20 miles up the Colorado River from here today, ready to surge into Lee's Ferry and their first contact with civilization in 18 dramatic days. July 8th, Lee's Ferry. As we pull up to the right bank, I see the reporters sprawled around sleeping. We get a frantic reception. Then, in order to give them a landing picture, we drift upstream in an eddy and come in again. We enjoy some watermelon and other goodies. The breather at Lee's Ferry proved critical, not only to reprovision, but to restaff. With two men on the team calling it quits, it looked as though the expedition was going to be scuttled. But Elzada Clover and Norm Nevels were both determined to take things all the way to Lake Mead through the Grand Canyon proper. So they managed to find some replacements. That pit stop at Lee's Ferry was significant for yet another reason. Buzz Holmstrom and himself shows up in person to meet these two women that he's been reading so much about in the news. You remember Buzz, don't you? Women do not belong in the canyon of the Colorado. You can tell he's a little nervous about this. <laughs> like, he shows up thinking, like, they're going to ruin my plans because he intends to go down the river again later that year and try to make a movie about his adventures and sell that movie. He's always hard up for cash, right? And how can he do that if suddenly this is the kind of trip that even women can do? So he's, I think he's a little nervous, and he shows up at Lee's Ferry. Um, at this point, Elzada Clover has gone off to recruit some more boatmen, so it's just Lois Jotter there. And I think they're both surprised. Neither of them meet the person they were expecting to meet. They spend about a day and a half together. And in the course of that day and a half, Buzz Holmstrom changes his mind. And he actually writes a letter to his mother right after meeting Lois that says, the women on that trip are really doing better than the men. <laughs> he presents her with a gift a good luck charm. On Navajo Bridge, which spans the Colorado River at Lee's Ferry, she takes it as a token of his change of heart that he gives her a match case that he carried down the river in 1937, and she gets to carry it through the Grand Canyon in 1938, and I carried it through the Grand Canyon in 2021. That is a treasured item. Yeah. It was incredibly touching to me that 
Lois Jodder's son, Victor, passed this along to me. I think as it was kind of felt like a moment of good faith that I was going to do justice to this story. And then having it with me on the river trip as a good luck charm. I have to say, people who who run rivers are often quite superstitious. There's all sorts of superstitions going down the Colorado River. And I guess this was mine, that if I kept that with me, I was going to be okay. I was going to be safe. And I was also going to be connected to this incredible history of people who came before me. I can see your face. (laughs) And as you hold that match case... So much can be contained just in the tangible artifact, you know? It was, it's really, yeah. <laughs> I try not to get teary-eyed when I talk about it. You know, it's more than just a good luck charm. It's a... It's, yeah, it's tangible. I, You know, being able to touch a piece of history and connect with these people who really lived. They're not just characters in my book, they're real people. And... Knowing that Buzz Holmstrom changed his mind about women and that Lois Jodder was able to get him to change his mind, knowing kind of the arc, the redemptive arc of his story and Lois Jodder's courage in going on this journey. I mean, Lois Jodder packed all of her stuff in boxes before she left on this trip and told her roommate, here's the stuff I want to give away to my friends and family if I don't come back. And the fact that she went anyway is incredible to me. And uh, I, I felt that for her, you know? I felt what she must have felt. We're about to continue downriver into the Grand Canyon with the expeditioners Elzada Clover, Lois Jodder, and their crew. Joining us for this expedition we call Constant Wonder is Melissa Sivany, author of Brave the Wild River, the untold story of two women who mapped the botany of the Grand Canyon. I'm Marcus Smith. July 9th, Associated Press. Inculcated against fear by 18 dramatic days of plunging down one of the West's mightiest rivers, two women, one of them nearing middle age, awaited eagerly today the start of the second half of the Colorado River descent to the quiet waters behind Boulder Dam. Informed that the six-member scientific expedition still had the turbulent rapids of the Grand Canyon to navigate, 40-year-old Elzada Clover, plump University of Michigan botanist, said, We know what to expect. Rapids frightened me when the trip started, but now I know how to handle the boat. This style of reporting, you just can't take it at face value. Photos from the expedition show Elzada to have been of medium build, hardly plump. I rather doubt this correspondent was ever on the scene. Her 25-year-old assistant, Lola Jotter, was anxious to get underway. I'm not worried, she said. The trip has been exciting, and it looks as though Dr. Clover and I will be the first women to conquer the Colorado. Conquer the Colorado. You might hear that from some Lola Jodder, but certainly not from the lowest Jodder we've already gotten to know. These quote-unquote quotes, they're not authentic. Cut from whole cloth. 
I mentioned to Melissa Sivany how doubtful I am that these reporters were ever held to very high standards. Not at all. And I could tell that from their diaries because they commented on it. They would say things like, well, I told them this, but the quote was this. At one point, Lois Jotter writes to a friend back in Michigan saying, don't believe anything the newspapers say because they made up all the quotes. (laughs) We've included newspaper accounts here, warts and all, partly to capture the spirit of the times, but also as a reminder that these were in fact the same kinds of articles that friends, family, and relatives would have been pouring over from start to finish of this expedition. Would you paint a picture of how crazy the mystique around the canyon was, the entire length of the river, but the canyons in particular, Cataract Canyon and the Grand Canyon, because the imagination just ran wild in public consciousness about what this place was that would eat you alive. Oh, gosh, it really did. I was very curious about what people thought about the Grand Canyon in the 1930s. People thought that there were these herds of miniature horses running around in the Grand Canyon that had been trapped in the canyon for so long that their size shrank until they were the size of coyotes. Of course, the indigenous people who live there, the Havasupai, the Wallapai, know that these stories are nonsense. But if you read the newspapers in the 1930s, People really thought that the Grand Canyon was this very, very wild, very isolated place and kind of mysterious and gothic and gloomy. Um, Alzada Clover was warned, like, you're going to be depressed down there because you can barely see the sun and the rapids make this noise that just hammers on you until it drives you mad. Like, people really told her this. Of course, when they get down there, they don't feel that way at all. They really connect to how lovely and beautiful it is. But I think they were brave for going anyway after being told that that's what they should expect. Every additional river mile instilled greater confidence in Norm Nevels and his crew. Downstream, at the end of the journey, they were running several rapids that much earlier on, say in Cataract Canyon, they would have lined, which means leading along empty boats by rope while walking the banks. July 18th, Grapevine. We pull in on the left, barely above the head of the rapid. The roar is terrific and impressive. Under different circumstances, this would be considered unrunnable. But lining would be exceedingly dangerous, if at all possible. And of course, portaging is out of the question. The complications of big holes and lashing waves doesn't look good, but it has to be run, and here we go. Wicked ride. I pull in on the right below so as to get pictures of the other boats. They come a-tossing, and all safe at 3.20 p.m. Journalists seemed almost gleeful to pass along the ominous figure 666 when reporting total miles the party needed to cover from Green River, Utah, to Lake Mead. Over that entire stretch were only two points at which the so-called river rats could make contact with society and enjoy a few days' reprieve, some of the creature comforts of civilization— The first point being Lee's Ferry, and the second access point at Bright Angel Creek. From the river there, an eight-mile trail leads nearly 5,000 feet up to the canyon's south rim and Grand Canyon Village. Elzada made most of the climb to the village on her own. But after six and a half miles, in triple-digit heat, she was completely spent. Norm Nevels ran ahead and had a mule sent back down for her, They gave themselves a three-day break, and then it was back down the trail to the boats. Diary entries by Norm Nevels now grow uniformly upbeat and confident. 
July 29th. I frankly have been surprised at the rapids of Grand Canyon. Expected more severe rapids. Guess I'm used to them. If it hadn't been that I want a sure thing and getting through perfectly okay, and no upsets, I would have run Lava Falls. It isn't so much. 43 days. It takes them 43 days to do this trip, including the, the few layovers they had in contact with the outside world. Um, but for the most part, 43 days on the river, they arrive at Lake Mead. They discover the boats they're in are not designed for rowing over a lake in 110-degree temperatures. It's quite awful. It's going to take them three days to do that. Heat stroke would have been a real danger. Luckily, they don't have to because Buzz Holmstrom shows up with a motorboat and rescues them. He ties up the boats, tows them all the way to Lake Mead, and it is kind of a triumph. There's press there, there's a congressman there, there's a few family members there waiting to greet them. Buzz Holmstrom again. It's too much like the movies. You need a Buzz Holmstrom. Everybody needs a Buzz Holmstrom every so often. Somebody who may not get it at first, but slowly comes around and then shows up when needed most. The next summer, he, together with a friend, would shoot the Colorado, becoming the first known river rats to do the entire run shooting every single rapid without lining. Now, I'm telling you about that accomplishment, not just for the glory they deserve, but also because on that trip, Buzz stumbled upon and rescued a trove of plant pressings that had gone missing near the end of the Clover Jotter expedition. Buzz knew immediately whose specimens these were, and he shipped them back to Michigan to their grateful owners. Now at the moment, here he is showing up at the tail end of the botanist's 1938 journey, very happy to tow them across Lake Mead to hotels awaiting them in Boulder City. Boulder City, Nevada, August 2nd, The Associated Press. First women to sail Colorado would like to do it again. Two Michigan schoolmams who sailed 666 miles down the treacherous Colorado River, past rapids and whirlpools, patted their copper tan cheeks with powder puffs today, and ordered a victory dinner of rattlesnake steak. The only women in history to complete the perilous voyage from Green River, Utah, to Boulder Dam, Elzada Clover, 40-year-old University of Michigan botanist, and her assistant, Lois Jotter, 25, arrived here with five man companions last night. It has been more successful than we dreamed it would be, Dr. Clover exclaimed. Two hitherto unknown species of cacti were discovered, and we found an abundance of plant life not known to exist along the Colorado. I wouldn't advise two other women to make the river trip, unless they are as sane or insane as we are, but I should like to do it again. It was grand fun. As I understand it, this river running trip in 1938 produced a collection of specimens, of botanical specimens, that even today remains the only collection made before Lake Powell formed and submerged all of that. That's right. It was the only formal collection, comprehensive collection made on this 600-mile stretch of river before Glen Canyon Dam went up in the 1960s. And the physical plant specimens are still housed in herbaria all over the country, including the Smithsonian Institution, so they're still available to researchers to study. But it's really incredible what they managed to accomplish under these incredibly difficult circumstances. Today, the Mathai Botanical Gardens at the University of Michigan 
boast proudly of the scientific work that these two botanists accomplished on their remarkable journey. So what ultimately became of the principal players in this story? After earning some well-deserved fame as the Colorado River pilot, Norm Nevels, along with his wife Doris, died in 1949, crashing in a single-engine Piper Cub that they relied upon to navigate and supply their far-flung enterprise. Buzz Holmstrom also came to a tragic end, dying in 1946, an apparent suicide. Elzada Clover continued to teach and research at the University of Michigan, retiring in 1967. She moved to Texas, where apparently it's easier to grow cacti. Lois Jodder married another botanist with whom she had two children. After her husband's death, she taught botany at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro, until she retired in 1984. And get this, she ran the Grand Canyon for her last time at 80 and died at 99. While researching all the details connected with this story, Melissa Sivany simply could not not run the canyon herself. And she chose to do so in company with a group of botanists, naturally. And as you've already heard, the self-same match case Buzz Holmstrom had taken on his solo run and then presented to Lois Jodder at Lee's Ferry as a gift, well, it went down the gorge a third time in Melissa's possession. I'm going to read to you something you've written. Here it is. The boats drifted between deep red walls, which when lit by morning sun turned pale gold layered on rose. Windows and doorways opened high on the cliffs as if built for gods or angels, bits of blue sky showing through. In some places, rocks were stacked as neatly as if by a bricklayer. In others, they made a disordered jumble like a child's tower kicked to pieces. It was a place to overwhelm and bewilder the senses. Fragrances so strong they had texture, colors so bright they rang like harp strings plucked by long, nimble fingers of sunlight. The bewilderment of the senses. What do you do with that? I'm glad you read that section. It's it's almost, well, not word for word, but it, it's directly from the journal I kept when I went on my Grand Canyon River trip. This is something a true historian would never do, but I wanted to fill in the gaps of what they were seeing and describing. You know, the diaries were wonderfully detailed about kind of the events, but sometimes they would just say, it rained today, or nice clouds and red cliffs. And I wanted to be able to fill in what it was really like to be down on on the bottom of the canyon. And that bewilderment, something I wasn't expecting going into it, despite all of the reading I had done, you know, about this trip beforehand. Part of that section you just read comes from an experience I had early in the trip hiking up a side channel in the Grand Canyon, this narrow slot canyon. You're kind of moving along these twisty red walls, and there's these beautiful plants just kind of fountaining out of the walls around you. And I'm walking along, and I hit this ribbon of scent that stops me dead in my tracks. It's this narrow little ribbon from some flower which I hunted for and could not find, just coming down like this, like this, it had texture. It literally stopped me in my tracks, this incredible smell. And in that moment, I, I felt like I knew what it was like to be maybe like a, a bumblebee whose world is textured by the smell of the flowers around them. It was incredible, and I'm not even sure I can describe it in words, 
but your human senses are inadequate to experience a place like the Grand Canyon, maybe to experience any place, any portion of the natural world. We're so limited in what we can see and hear and smell. And you go down to a place like the Grand Canyon and all of that just gets jumbled together in a way that shows you how tiny (laughs) you are as a human being and also how connected you are to this beautiful world around you. Some of the themes Melissa is touching on here are hardly unfamiliar to this podcast, which hinges on a quest for awe and wonder, feeling tiny but still part of an immense cosmos, lacking words to convey concrete encounters with things beautiful or sublime. Our attempts to memorialize what eludes full or sometimes even partial comprehension. Most of my time today out here in quote-unquote real world is spent in front of a computer with things dinging at me and demanding my attention. And yet when you're down on the bottom of a place like the Grand Canyon, it all fades away. After two or three days going down, I imagine any river it starts to fall away and become incredibly unreal. You forget that cell phones exist or that emails exist. And the only thing I really thought about down there that was connected to the outside world were the people that I care about, people like my husband and my family and my friends. But I didn't think about email or work. I was just there. I was just present. And I think being out in the natural world teaches you what it really means to be human. I'm Marcus Smith. You've been listening to Constant Wonder. We'd like to thank Melissa Sivany for visiting with us about her beautifully written book, Brave the Wild River, the untold story of the two women who mapped the botany of the Grand Canyon. We'd also like to thank Lou Steiger for allowing us to use his recordings of Lois Jodder's recollections. Thanks to Kyle Riemond, Ryan Clark, Brian Tanner, Eric Glissmeyer, Audrey Hughes, Christy Lindstrom, Becca Hurley, and Barry Squires for helping us voice the various roles you heard in this story. Sound design was by Trent Reimschussel, Carly Wilson, and Josh Founts. Today's episode was produced by Eric Schultzka with help from Mamie Teeples and Lily Jensen. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio.